Canadians have a lot to consider now that cannabis is legal. All of a sudden, things start to go south. And then he issued the three of us lifetime bans. Data knows no borders. Someone hacked us and got access to all of our records. How can you be a drug trafficker if you haven't actually sold any drugs? We didn't really get privacy and why these things really matter in the business we're in. Over one million organizations collect, use, and disclose the personal information of individuals in BC. Under BC privacy law, organizations must protect and secure personal information. They also must provide individuals with access to their own personal information when requested. Okay, okay. This all sounds a bit dry, doesn't it? Well, that's why we're trying something a little bit different. The podcast you're about to listen to is fictional, but the stories are based on real files we see in our office. It's part of our Privacy Rights series of videos, webinars, podcasts, guidance documents, and other tools to help small businesses understand BC's Personal Information Protection Act, or PIPA. This is Through the Haze. Today we're going to jump right into an issue that is still relatively new, so the details are a bit hazy. In October 2018, recreational marijuana became legal in Canada. The federal government provided a general framework for legislation, leaving it up to each province to finalize key details, including distribution models. So what does this look like in BC? Well, adults 19 or older can possess up to 30 grams of cannabis in a public place. Private and government-operated retail stores can sell cannabis using similar rules already in place for liquor. In addition to the physical retail stores, the BC government sells cannabis online. Government has also put in place a 90-day administrative driving prohibition for drug-affected driving on top of the existing potential for fines and jail time. And there are zero tolerance restrictions for THC use by drivers in the graduated licensing program. Okay, so this may not be new information, and it does seem pretty straightforward. So why are we talking about this? Well, there's more to this story than meets the eye. For instance, have you ever thought about how any association with the cannabis industry, whether as a user or worker, could affect your eligibility to enter the U.S.? You might be asking, how could anything that's legal in Canada have anything to do with crossing the border? Well, it gets complicated, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Today, we're going to follow three stories. First, we'll talk to Kelly. Kelly is a recreational cannabis user from Delta, BC. She's an avid outdoor adventurer who spends a lot of time backpacking in Oregon and Washington. She also has an aunt in Blaine, Washington, who's very sick, so Kelly tries to visit her every month or so. Then we'll talk to Arnold. Arnold works at Up and Smoke, a private cannabis store in Victoria, BC. The store experienced a data breach a month after opening, affecting customers, employees, and others. Finally, we chat with Sue. This is a particularly interesting case as Sue doesn't really have anything to do with cannabis. She's a manager at a company in White Rock that works with various American companies to design new equipment. And yet, even though she's never smoked cannabis in her life, Sue found herself with a lifetime ban from the U.S. as a drug trafficker. Going. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I know things have been a bit crazy recently. No problem. I just hope I can help. This whole situation is just a bit unbelievable, you know? 
This is Kelly. She's 24, about average height, with short brown hair that seems to have a mind of its own. She writes for an outdoor magazine, articles about the best hiking trails, campsites, and general outdoorsy stuff. Kelly is also a recreational cannabis user. She doesn't drink, feels that it affects her body in a way she doesn't like, so she uses cannabis to relax. I first heard her story on the news a few months back, so I reached out to learn more. Let's start from the beginning. Tell me what happened. So I go to the States a lot for work and also to visit family. My aunt isn't doing that well, so I've been going over to help her after some of the more intense chemo treatments. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's okay. It's the way it goes, I guess. Anyway, so a while back, I crossed over with my partner Joe for a backpacking trip, and we get to the border agent, and he asks Joe if he's ever smoked weed. And Joe says... Yeah, I've smoked it before. And the border guard is like, okay, and then moves on. So Joe didn't run into any issues? No, the guard just made a note of it and moved on. Then, about a month later, I come over to visit my aunt because the chemo treatments have been really hard and she's super sick after each session. I'm at the border and they ask the usual questions and then they ask me if I've ever smoked weed. And I say, yeah, and all of a sudden, things start to go south. What do you mean? They bring me into this room for questioning, and they ask me how often I smoke cannabis. And they say that I better tell the truth because they can make me do a lie detector test, and they would also search my phone, check out all my social media posts. So I tell them that I use it occasionally, which is the truth. And how did they respond to that? Well, they gave me a lifetime ban for using a controlled substance. Wait, what? Did you tell them that you use cannabis in the States? Nope. I was very clear that I've only ever smoked in Canada, where it is legal. But it didn't matter, because they said federally in the U.S. it's illegal. This all sounded a bit extreme to me. So, I reached out to Mary, an immigration lawyer based in Washington State. Apparently, Mary's the person to go to if you run into issues at the U.S. border. And she's been really busy lately, as more and more Canadians are finding that routine border crossings can be anything but. Mary was willing to talk to me about the shifts she's seen over the past few years and what Canadians need to know when crossing the border. Hi, is this Mary? Yes, hello. Thanks so much for taking my call. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate your time. No worries. I hope I can help. So to give you a bit of background, I was talking to Kelly, and she recently got a lifetime ban from the U.S. because she admitted to a border guard that she smokes cannabis. She told them she only smokes in Canada, where it's legal, but they still gave her a lifetime ban. Yes, this is becoming more common. For anyone who has received a ban, there is an option to get a waiver. However, it can take a while to get one. They're only good for a specific time period, and they're expensive. That's a lot of the work I do. Many of my clients have received a lifetime ban and are trying to figure out their options. It sounds like Canadians are being punished for doing something that's completely legal in Canada. It's a very interesting situation we find ourselves in. Cannabis is still labeled as a Schedule One drug by the U.S. federal government. That means it's in the same class as heroin, cocaine, etc. So the U.S. federal government takes its use very seriously. And U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents are using interrogation techniques that raise a few questions. Right. Kelly touched on a couple of those as well, saying they would make her take a lie detector test or check her social media accounts. I've even heard of threats of drug tests right there and then. They can't do that though, can they? 
Well, no, border agents have broad authority when it comes to conducting their checks, but those powers do not extend to drug testing people or compelling someone to take a lie detector test. Claiming they can do these things is just an intimidation tactic to get people to come forward with information. What about phones or laptops and people's social media accounts? Well, let's break that down. They're permitted to search your phone or laptop and to request a password to access these devices if needed. Whoa, hold on. I know, kind of scary, right? But it's important that I qualify that. The most recent U.S. Customs and Border Protection Directive on this says that they can only access data that is on the device itself, locally accessible content. They're required to disable internet access or ask the traveler to switch the phone to airplane mode. That should, in theory, keep them from looking into people's social media accounts because that information is stored remotely, in theory. But I hear stories all the time about agents asking people to log into remote accounts and from there, every one of your likes and all kinds of other information is right there for them to access. Wow, that's alarming. Yeah, and all those possibilities create a tricky situation at the border. People don't know what to do because if you lie and get caught, you also face a lifetime ban. And obviously, we don't want to encourage anyone to be deceptive at the border. Of course not. But that seems to put some people in an impossible situation. What many people don't realize is that when you're asked about your cannabis use, you can decline to answer the question. Wait, you can? Yes. You simply need to say that you do not wish to answer the question and you would like to return to Canada. Then you can try to cross another day and hope to get a border guard who doesn't ask you that particular question. Because it's a discretionary question, right? It's not a question that is asked every single time, like where are you going, how long do you plan to stay, etc. And you need to keep in mind that U.S. border services can access certain Canadian records. What do you mean? Well, they can access Canadian Police Information Centre records, which would have a log of any drug-related driving prohibition, for example. That could be enough to keep you out. This one is interesting because the technology used to test for cannabis-impaired driving is still relatively new. It isn't as simple as taking a breathalyzer. So I expect there will be more questions about accuracy and such raised in the courts. But again, results from those tests are something U.S. Border Services could potentially access. The other thing to know about is something called the U.S. Freedom Act. You might remember it as the Patriot Act. It's funny because many Canadians wouldn't guess that this would apply to them. But it is important to know that the Freedom Act gives the U.S. government access to any records stored in the U.S. I know it's a powerful piece of legislation, but I guess I don't understand how it affects Canadians if it's for records in the States. Data knows no borders. I think we all know that by now. Did you know that your credit card information may be stored in the U.S.? I didn't even think about that. Right. So with the USA Freedom Act, the U.S. government may access Canadians' transaction records. Okay, I get that that's an issue in general, but I guess I'm missing how it applies to Canadians trying to cross the border. Well, it's common enough for people buying cannabis legally in Canada to use a debit or credit card for certain transactions instead of just cash. Then think about the name of the business that appears on the credit card statement. Sometimes they're obviously cannabis-related. Sometimes it's harder to tell, and a quick online search can often remove any doubt. And then, there you go, proof that you either support cannabis products or you consume them yourself. It could certainly be interpreted that way. And then there are investors who buy stock in cannabis companies. That opens up another can of worms. How so? Well, the U.S. has said that an investor entering the country for reasons unrelated to the industry will generally be allowed in. But at the same time, I've heard stories from frazzled travelers that suggest that's not always the case. So what you're saying is that the border is something of a gray zone when it comes to official declarations versus enforcement on the ground. 
I think that's fair, and investments in cannabis add yet another wrinkle. The Canadian Securities Exchange offers many stocks in cannabis-related companies, and they've come under criticism for making investors' personal information publicly accessible. That sounds like a red flag for a border agent. Right. Even if you don't use cannabis personally or work in the industry, you're technically supporting it if you invest in cannabis companies, and that has created a lot of uncertainty for travelers. That's a lot to consider just crossing the border. Yeah, I have several clients who work in the cannabis industry that have been caught up in this as well. One of them doesn't even work in the industry directly. She was just an engineer working on plans for a machine that could be used by cannabis workers to assist with harvesting. I can touch base with her and see if she would be willing to talk to you if you like. I would really appreciate that. Thank you, Mary. The conversation with Mary honestly left me a bit stunned. It seemed like this was actually a much bigger issue for Canadians than I had anticipated. So, while I waited to hear back from Mary, I got in touch with Arnold. I came across Arnold's name in a news story about a data breach at Up in Smoke, a cannabis retail shop in Victoria, BC, where Arnold works. The breach occurred not long after they opened the shop. Up in Smoke stores all of its purchase information in the cloud, and BC law does not prohibit a private business from storing personal information on cloud servers in the US. I sat down with Arnold at a small cafe. He's a younger guy, probably in his late 20s. He's from Victoria, grew up here, and he's worked various retail jobs. He started at Up and Smoke just after the store received a license to sell cannabis in BC. Arnold, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hey, no problem. So tell me a little bit about your time at Up and Smoke. You said you started shortly after your shop received its license. Yeah, it was such an exciting time. We knew we were really getting in on the ground floor of something special. In those early days, there was a huge turnout of people looking to buy, some looking for jobs, and some just looking because they were curious. Because it really is kind of exciting, right? This is a big shift for Canada. So we open, and we're really busy. We have a membership system set up so that we can help customers keep track of products they like and products they don't. Some people are buying for recreational use, some are buying for more medical purposes, and we just want to help. And it's all going pretty smoothly, you know? So far, so good, right? Yeah. When a couple of months in, and we're definitely one of the most successful shops in Victoria. Right off the bat, we developed a good reputation with our customers. Our storefront was clean and welcoming. So what happened? Well, there was a breach, a data breach. Turns out someone hacked us and got access to all of our records. They got customer transactions, order histories, our entire wholesale purchase information, employee records, applicant resumes, everything. Oh wow, that sounds really bad. It was. When we looked at all of the stuff that hackers are able to access, we decided to notify our customers that their credit cards and other information were compromised. We even let anyone who applied to work here know that their resumes and applications were accessed. And some of them were really mad. I can imagine. And of course, many of us are thinking, man, this could really affect us. We realized that as employees, we could be targeted if we crossed the border now that this info was out there. So I'm weighing my options about what to do about that. Arnold's story got me thinking. You know, we hear about data breaches all the time, but we don't really give them much thought until they hit home. And a breach like this could hit home in a serious way, given the sensitivity of the information. So what should Arnold, or anybody in his place, do to mitigate those potential harms? I decided to reach out to BC's Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for advice. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Not a problem. Glad to be able to help. So I've been looking into the privacy issues associated with the legalization of cannabis in Canada, and I have to say I wasn't expecting to come across so many twists and turns. Before I get into the main reason for my call, I did want to clarify something with you. 
Yes, of course. Go ahead. One of the issues that's come up is that Canadians who cross the border and who've legally used cannabis are facing lifetime bans from the U.S. Some of these have resulted from the U.S. accessing Canadians' information via the U.S. Freedom Act. Is it okay for a business to store personal information in the U.S.? That's a great question, and I can understand why there's confusion. See, our office enforces two pieces of legislation, the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, which applies to the public sector, and the Personal Information Protection Act, which applies to private organizations. Now, FIPA requires public bodies to store personal information in Canada, with a few exceptions. So the public sector generally can't store personal information outside of Canada. PIPA, however, is different. There aren't any data sovereignty provisions in PIPA, so private businesses aren't bound by those requirements. Data sovereignty provisions, what does that mean? Data sovereignty provisions are sections or provisions within an act that require personal information to be retained within a geographical region. And PIPA doesn't have this. So that means that businesses can store personal information outside of Canada. But under PIPA, they are still obliged to take reasonable security measures when doing so. That means they are legally required to prevent unauthorized access to personal information. They're also responsible for information no matter where they store it or who they store it with. Interesting. Thanks for clarifying. Okay, so the main reason I wanted to talk to you was because I've been looking into how the new cannabis legislation affects Canadians. One of the people I interviewed works at a retail shop. They experienced a data breach that affected customers, employees, and even people who had applied for jobs in the past. It seems to me that there's an increased risk of harm because of the sensitive nature of the information. Yes. Any breach of personal information can pose real risks, and extra care must be taken when the personal information is more sensitive. Could you walk us through how a business should handle a breach? That's sort of a best-case scenario? Sure. There's four steps to follow here. First is containment of the breach. This should include stopping the access to the information, recovering the records, shutting down the system that was breached, or revoking computer access codes. And this really should be done immediately. Then the second step is to assess the risks. Was personal information even involved? Remember, generally speaking, the more sensitive the data, the higher the risk of harm to the affected individuals. It's important to ask how that personal information could be used and what caused the breach. Was the information encrypted? Has the information been recovered? What steps have been taken to isolate and minimize any potential for harm? How many people were affected? Who has seen the information? These questions will help an organization determine the severity of the breach. Third, you'll need to figure out if notification is necessary. Is there a risk of identity theft? Is there a risk of physical harm or maybe a risk of damage to reputation or loss of business or employment opportunities? If the organization determines that notification is necessary, direct notification should occur as soon as possible. This means contacting the affected individual by phone or letter or in person. Isn't that just a given? It seems like common sense to have to notify someone if their personal information has been compromised. You'd be surprised. Breach notification isn't mandatory in British Columbia, even though it is in other jurisdictions within the country. However, it is something that our office has called for, and I really hope to see some legislative changes to this effect soon. The fourth and final stage of dealing with a breach is prevention. Once you have responded to the immediate issues, it's important you take the time to thoroughly investigate the cause of the breach to make sure that future breaches do not occur. Does your office have any role in this? Yeah. We are here to help. If we are notified of a breach, we work with organizations to provide resources and guidance and walk them through the steps that I just went through. 
Can you give any advice to cannabis retail shops when it comes to protecting information? In the case I referred to earlier, people who applied for a job but didn't get one had their personal information compromised. Now there's a concern that their information could affect their admissibility into the U.S., even though they didn't end up working in the cannabis industry. What should retailers do to protect personal information? I would really recommend robust security measures, encryption, build a privacy management program and have policies, provide training to staff, only collect and retain the personal information needed to perform the service. For example, it's not necessary for a cannabis shop to keep a photocopy or scanned copy of an individual client's driver's license. They may need to look at it to verify an individual's age, but there should be no need to keep a record of it. Oh, interesting. I just assumed that they would need to keep that information on record, but I guess there isn't a need to keep it on file, is there? Nope. Uh, and again, we're here to help assist with those kinds of distinctions. If you're an organization and you aren't sure what type of information you should or shouldn't be collecting, we have guidance to help ask the right questions and strengthen privacy practices. We even have guidance specific for the cannabis retail transactions. Thanks very much for your time. Not a problem. Glad I could help. After speaking with the OIPC, I heard back from Mary, the immigration lawyer in Washington. The client she had mentioned agreed to speak to me as long as I didn't use her real name. So for these purposes, I'll call her Sue. Sue is an engineer working for an agricultural equipment manufacturer. About six months ago, Sue and two of her colleagues were traveling to the U.S. to meet with a company to discuss designs for a new piece of equipment. This was common practice for Sue as the two companies had worked together on numerous projects. Hello. Hi, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. Can I call you Sue? Does that work for you? Yes, yes, Sue will be just fine. Great. So I know you've worked with Mary, and I'm really interested to hear your story. Can you fill me in on what happened? Yes, of course. It seemed like a pretty routine trip. We travel down to the US all the time, as we often work with a company down there on new equipment designs. It was me and two of my colleagues on this trip, which again is pretty routine. We all have Nexus passes because we cross the border so often, so the border isn't usually a big deal. And what made this trip different? Well, we get to the border and they start going through the routine questions. You know, how long do you plan to stay in the US? Do you have any fruit? The usual. They ask my colleague the reason for visiting the US and he mentions that we're meeting to discuss the design of a new piece of equipment. So the border guard asks a bit more about it and seems interested. Was there something special about the equipment you were designing? Apparently, my colleague mentioned that it could be used for a number of jobs, including harvesting cannabis, and then there was just a dead stop. What do you mean? The three of us were immediately brought into a back room and questioned for a few hours, and we tried to explain that we hadn't designed the product yet. It hadn't been sold or pitched to any companies, and it wasn't even intended only for harvesting cannabis. We were still in the early stages of seeing whether our design was even feasible. That sounds really intense. It was. The guard apologised, but he said we weren't admissible because we were considered drug traffickers. And then he issued the three of us lifetime bans. Oh, wow. But that doesn't make sense. How can you be a drug trafficker if you haven't actually sold any drugs? That's part of my issue. I have a clean criminal record. I've never smoked pot in my life. I'm just an engineer who happened to have an idea for equipment that could potentially be used in the cannabis industry. So that made me a target, I guess. And this affects you professionally, as you can't travel to the US anymore. That's right. I've been working with Mary to get a waiver, but that's still ongoing. It's expensive and it isn't a permanent fix. I just don't understand. I feel helpless and I feel like I'm getting caught up in something that isn't about me. Sue, I'm sorry things have taken this turn for you. 
Thanks for taking the time to speak with me, and I wish you the best of luck with this. Thanks. Canadians have a lot to consider now that cannabis is legal. How is personal information collected and handled by cannabis retail shops? What information is being collected? How is it being used? What could happen to that information, and ultimately me, if it's part of a data breach? Can it be accessed by other countries? And more specifically, there's the question of how information related to your cannabis use, or any ties to the cannabis industry, could impact you at the U.S. border. That's not to mention any drug-related incidents or prohibitions on your driving record. Those two could keep you out. And it's important to remember, as the people I spoke to make clear, that cannabis users aren't the only ones affected. So, what's the takeaway here? Well, it's frustrating when a story ends with more questions than answers. And in this case, at the end of it all, I don't really have the answers I was hoping for. After all, how can you find secure footing on such shifting ground when decisions are made on what could seem like an almost arbitrary basis? Well, you can't. But there are things that are under our control. And, crucially, under the control of those who work with our personal information on a daily basis. Arnold, hello. We spoke a little while ago about the data breach at your shop, and I was hoping to touch base with you to see how things are going now. Well, pretty good, all things considered. Thanks. I mean, don't get me wrong, that data breach was a total nightmare, but one that was probably bound to happen. How so? Well, our intentions were good, but we were moving fast in uncharted territory. We didn't really get privacy, you know, and why these things really matter in the business we're in, or our role or responsibilities. Well, we're starting to get a handle on that now. Have you made any changes as a result? Oh yeah. Well, we're going by the golden rule of not collecting any more personal information than we absolutely need. That's number one right there. No ID scanner, for example. And the information we do collect is more secure now. It's encrypted and stored locally. No worries about Uncle Sam taking a look when somebody crosses the border anymore. We've retrained all of our staff on our new privacy policy as well. No really earth-shattering changes, but ones that'll hopefully help us win back some trust. We can't turn back the clock, but we can do our best to make sure that a breach like this never happens again. And that's what we intend to do. The change in pot laws should have meant fewer headaches for people to deal with, not just a whole new set of different ones. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia. Voice talents include Christina Sefchik as Kelly, Barbara Hoptoff as Mary, Glenn Morgan as Arnold, Christopher Gillespie as the OIPC representative, Lisa Damasio as Sue, and I'm Noel Boyvin. Stay tuned for more Privacy Right podcast videos and webinars dealing with small businesses and the Personal Information Protection Act. If you have any questions or concerns, we're here to help. You can call our office at 250-387-5629 or send us an email at info at oipc.bc.ca. Make sure to check out our website, oipc.bc.ca, for guidance documents and more on access to information and privacy in British Columbia. Until next time. Mm-hmm.